My name's Natalie Pearson and I work for the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre and we're going to be doing some podcasts for the Politics in Action 2018 event. And uh, Charlotte, perhaps you could introduce yourself and um, tell us what your role is and, and what your research looks at. Great, yeah. Thank you very much for having me here, by the way. And I'm here for the SEAC Politics in Action event uh, where I'll be speaking about Indonesia. My name is Charlotte Stiadi. I am a visiting fellow at ICSU's Fishak Institute in Singapore, where I've been there for about three years now, um, looking at identity politics in Indonesia more specifically. But we also keep an eye out for political developments in Indonesia and also around the Southeast Asian region more generally. And uh, in particular, we have our eye on the regional elections in Indonesia coming up in June uh, and also in the lead up to the elections in um, April next year for the legislative and presidential elections. 2019. That's yep. right. Okay, so could you start by telling us a little bit um, about the big picture in terms of the political situation in Indonesia? It's been an interesting week in Indonesia uh, in the past week. Of course, uh, Indonesia is still in shock, both the government and the and the public at large, about the bombings that happened, the church bombings that happened in Surabaya last week. Before that, that was the, there was the prison riot that happened in Mako Brimob in Jakarta, coincidentally where uh, Ahok Basuki Chaya Purnama uh, is held, but um, he was not the t intended target and apparently he's fine, so uh, at least there's some good news there. But uh, in general, um, the, this round of terrorist attacks have taken uh, Indonesia by surprise mm. because I guess nobody, all the attention has been concentrated on Jakarta that you know people didn't really expect such a big thing to happen outside of Jakarta, particularly um, in, in a place like Surabaya that's been relatively safe and harmonious in the past. Um, and also because of the nature of the bombing, mm. uh, where it involved an entire family, including children. So that has uh, brought the attention to uh, security and the government's anti-terrorism measures and also the extent of Islamic radicalization in Indonesia, mm. which I think the government in the past has sort of brushed aside uh, a little bit too much. Um, and this has brought them out of that comfort zone. Mm. Um, and for this uh, terror attack to happen exactly on the day of the 20th anniversary of the reform, of Reformasi on the 13th, 14th of May uh, was was quite significant for some people. Uh, and analysts as well are reflecting upon what this says about Indonesia today. Mm. Uh, where are we at? Mm. So I think uh, it's it's time for reflection. And this is also what I'm going to be talking about tomorrow during the politics in action event. Uh, basically a bit more of a run through about uh, where, where we are now, 20 years uh, down the track. Mm. Um, of course, if we've been looking at uh, developments that have happened in Indonesia in the last year, um, especially in the aftermath of the Jakarta election and the mass Islamic mobilization surrounding um, the, the case of blasphemy of, of Ahok in Jakarta and Jokowi's response to that, um, it's it's a good time to be reflecting on uh, the state of civil society in Indonesia, human rights, um, the role of the military, which in recent times, particularly with uh, figures, military figures such as um, Gatot Nurmantio, who's the former uh, commander of the armed forces, sort of inching closer and closer to mainstream politics. Are we looking at um, mm. um, the reintroduction of, of military elites into politics uh, and also uh, what Jokowi's responses has been? Mm. Uh, so I'll be talking about um, that 
more tomorrow. Excellent. Well, um, that's going to be streamed live on Facebook, so people can tune into that, which is wonderful. Um, so it has been 20 years since Reformasi and since Suharto stepped down. Is Indonesia uh, where you would expect it to be within two decades, or is it was it on track and has it sort of drifted? I think we should start with the positive when looking at uh, how things have been going the last 20 years, uh, especially if we compare Indonesia with other countries in Southeast Asia. Indonesia is perhaps uh, the most successful uh, case of democracy that, that you know that we see in the region. We still have uh, free and direct elections, uh, you know, the presidential level. We're going to have. Um, uh, regional elections involving 171 provinces, districts, and towns coming mm. up in June. Next year, with the legislative election and the presidential election on the same day, that's going to be the, the second largest uh, election event in the world, second only to the United States during their election. So there's a lot to celebrate about in terms of direct political participation. If we look at it in terms of the economy, for instance, uh, Indonesia is also doing well. Mm. Uh, the economy is expanding at 5%. Uh, it's still far off from what Jokowi wants, which is about 7% uh, mm. per year. But in general, doing okay. Mm. Um, having said that, I think uh, there has been some developments that signal uh, a regression in terms of uh, demo you know, democratic space uh, and also democratic deconsolidation um, even. Um, if we look mm. at um, what's been happening in the last year alone, for instance, in, in response to uh, the anti-Ahok protests last year in Jakarta, for instance, uh, President Joko Widodo has issued a presidential uh, regulation that allows the government to disband any civil organization deemed to be anti-Pancasila or anti-state ideology and, mm -hmm. and uh, considered to threaten um, the national unity. Of course, this was targeted towards Hizbut Tahrir Indonesia more specifically, uh, and Jokowi had a lot of support uh, because of this, because it was uh, considered to target um, extremist Islamist organizations in particular. But if we look at it, this is actually quite a dangerous development for Indonesian civil society because then the ambiguously worded now law yes. that has been passed by parliament can potentially be used against individuals mm. and, and civil society organizations. That's right. It's yeah. a question of how it's applied and also how it's measured and, and the government's discretion in applying it. Absolutely. That's right. And um, if we look at um, other pieces of regulation as well that has been uh, some of them quietly passed, such as right. the um, MD3 laws for te you know regarding uh, the the, the parliament, um, where now uh, the the house is protected against uh, criticisms uh, towards it that you know the police have rights to detain those who um, is considered to speak slander of members of parliament, um, you know, and this yeah. has been considered by civil rights and human rights groups as potentially yeah. shielding the house from allegations of corruption, corruption investigations. Of course, this was passed uh, right after Satya Novanto was arrested for his involvement in the large case, mm -hmm. uh, large scale IKTP uh, corruption scandal. Mm -hmm. And of course, Jokowi made a big show of not wanting to sign the bill uh, and give this pr approval as a as sort of like a a show of uh, solidarity resistance with the resistance, yeah. but yeah. it came too late, and, right. and and this was quite a strategic move on his behalf. So, do you see this as the start of a slippery slope? Yeah, I think so. I yeah. think so. Um, and uh, what's what's 
disconcerting is uh, 20 years um, after the start of reform, you know, after such a promising start. And yes, we have to acknowledge there has been a lot of uh, progress that has been made in terms of opening up of democratic spaces, institu institutional reform and all that. But the reaction of uh, leaders like Jokowi towards uh, some of the developments such as, um, you know, uh, Islamic uh, you know, Islamist factions being more mm -hmm. uh, influential um, is to resort to more authoritarian measures. Right. And this is something that's uh, disconcerting because then the frame of mind hasn't changed mm. in the last 20 years. Yeah. And that's what's worrying. So returning to old solutions to existing problems rather that's than right. seeking innovative solutions. Yes. Yeah. And even from if we look at it from the level of uh narratives that circulate in the public, right? Like now with uh, uncertainties that, you know, in, in the public mind comes from, you know, over-democratization, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the space has been opened up too much. Right. Uh, this is why you have more conservative and radicalized Islamic fashion factions, you know, becoming more prominent. People blame this on uh, kalewatan or, you know, democracy has gone too far. Yeah, too, too wide. Too wide. Yeah. Um, the public's reaction has been we need a stronger leader, we need a stronger military, mm. we need sort of more authoritarian measures, and this is okay. Uh, and I guess if we look at polling data, you know, the yeah. people with and the voters that have more conservative inclinations are actually the younger generation. And That's this is fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Can you tell me more about that well, and what, what the potential implications are or even the causes? Well, I guess analysts now are, are trying to, to understand why it is, right, that, that younger uh, voters, younger, you know, at least people who are polled, uh, tend to to be more okay with authoritarian styles and mm. conservative, you know, and, and more conservative stances. Uh, some of the explanations include because they've never lived through the new order, right. right? They have no recollection, they have no experience of what it's like to actually live under authoritarian rule. Yeah. Um, uh, today, one of the big issues, particularly in the lead up to next year election, next year's election, is widening um, economic inequality, or at least the perception of widening in economic inequality, and people are unsure about, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, job potential and all that. And of course, um, a lot of people, and this is something that the political opposition is also drumming up um, against Jokowi, is that this is the result of uh, a government that's not strong enough. Right. Um, so, you know, I guess from 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 a psychological perspective, we, we, we sort of look at it in terms of, you know, this is a reaction against fears of uncertainty in the future. Uh, but um, this has dangerous implications for the future, because particularly w if we look at it, um, the, the political players who are... Uh, in the public mind these days, such as uh, I mentioned before, Gatot Nurmantia, who's the former um, military commander, and he's been linked with mm. uh, more Islamist uh, factions as well, and uh, drumming up his own popularity through speaking through these populist Islamist terms too. Uh, and this is something that that clearly appeals to, yeah. to you know, at least more conservative voters. So do you think there is a danger of Indonesia shifting towards a sort of more... Um, non-electoral authoritarianism like Cambodia or Thailand? I think, you know, it's, um, I feel a little bit sensationalist, you know, putting it in those terms. <laughs> but, you know, they're, they're, you know, if we're not careful, yes, you know, because um, 
at the moment, people uh, in general, uh, even even people who are skeptical about it, feels still quite safe because Jokowi is the president, and he, you know he's likable. Uh, people generally have a high trust level towards Jokowi. Mm. Um, so some of these more authoritarian measures tend to be. Um, justified in terms of, oh, that's just Jokowi consolidating his power and he needs to do this. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in the long run, you know, what is the, you know, the president after this, you know, after Jokowi, what's going to happen with all these new mechanisms in place yeah. that actually could potentially allow for that regression back to sort of new order style era uh, style of government. Mm. So I think there's a danger there. And what do you think Jokowi's prospects will be next year? Well, uh, he's doing great in the polls, uh, mm. particularly uh, now that, you know, uh, it's very likely that Prabowo is going to run uh, against him. We don't know who else might, you know, throw their name in the in the, in the ballot. But yep. um, Jokowi is doing great. He said, uh, I think um, Indicator Politik uh, released their poll um, earlier this month. Uh, that he's at about 71% uh, performance satisfaction rating, which is which is great. Certainly um, better than uh, the performance rating in Australia or America. Yes, yes. <laughs> so the, you know, the kind of performance rating that you know other leaders would only dream of. Um, in terms of head-to-head -head with Prabowo, Prabowo is at about 19%, while Jokowi is about 60%. Right. So he's he's got a pretty strong, a, yeah. a pretty strong um, at least lead now and, and uh, chances of getting re-elected next year. Yeah. Um, I guess the question is... Um, what would a second term Jokowi presidency look like? Um, most uh, analysts and scholars hope that he, you know he will now that he doesn't have to worry about staying for a second term, he'll be uh, more reformist. He'll be able to sort of enact some of his own earlier promises um, better. But um, you know, people said the same thing about SPY when mm. SPY was up for re-election in 2019. That hopefully he'll be uh, sort of more uh, progressive. Actually, what we saw was he was more conservative. That's right. Uh, and protectionist. Mm. So we don't know um, where joke. You know what what's going to happen. Of but course. Yeah, yeah. But you know. Um, an interesting question now is, uh, of course, who is Jokowi going to pick as his VP? Because yeah. then there's the succession there about yeah. where Indonesia might go in the well, future. Well, that's quite that's quite an interesting point. So mm. a lot of the political leaders that um, we see in Indonesia come from that sort of uh, post-reformasi period. So who are the next generation? Who's, yeah. who's the younger generation of leaders coming up? If we see um, the names that are circulating in, in, in the public now and also from polling data that we've seen, um, there are some names that you know obviously came out of the Jakarta election last year. Mm. So consistently in the polls, we see Agus Yudhoyono uh, being mentioned as a potential good VP, uh, okay. and he polls very well. Anis Baswedan, the now governor of Jakarta, also polls very well. So this shows that yeah. uh, the Jakarta election last year really uh, did have a, a big impact yeah. uh, in terms of at least name recognition mm. uh, throughout the the archipelago. Mm. Uh, we also see actually if you if you look at the potential names for VPs, it's sort of like it's a good indication for you about uh, you know the state of Indonesian political politics and also the political players. Yeah. Uh, we see uh, names of ministers that are uh, quite um, often mentioned in the media, like Sri Mulyani, the finance minister. Uh, uh, Menteri Susi, Susi yeah. Pujastuti, who's yeah. the uh, fisheries minister. Very um, popular. Very minister. popular. Mm. Uh, will they get picked as VP? I don't think so. Mm. Uh, but but those names circulate. But also, um, 
uh, leaders of Islamist parties such as uh, Muhaymin Iskander from PKB uh, and also, of course, military commanders such as Gator Nurmantio and the police chief Tito Karnavian. Yeah. So it's a mix there between yeah. um, the next generation political dynasties such as uh, um, 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 Agus Yudhoyono, mm. you have Anis Baswedan, uh, who's an up-and-comer in Jakarta. Uh, you have like um, regional leaders who've risen through the ranks by means of you know meritocracy and also populism, such as Ridwan Kamil, mm. who's now running for West Java governor. And then you have like the military um, and and the Islamist uh, right. leaders as well. So it's a good it's a mixed bag that represents Indonesian politics today. Great overview. Um, now, we've t touched on Islam briefly, but uh, I'd like to ask you, a lot of people allude to a growing Islamic pious conservatism in Indonesia, in Indonesian politics. And so could you tell me what you think the root causes are for this sort of growth at this particular time? Is it a consequence of recent trends or a continuation of a more confident political Islam since the 90s? Yeah, I think like one thing that we often, uh, of, of course, this is not my my expertise, but um, from my conversations uh, with uh, experts on, on this field, something that we often forget is that Islamist factions has always been there uh, in, in, in within the Indonesian political sphere, you know, ever since the independence movements in the in, in the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. Throughout the New Order, they were marginalized and sidelined, and uh, it was very much controlled by the New Order. And in the post-Suharto era, those previously marginalized force, uh, voices can come to the fore and okay. combine with a global, uh, si the global atmosphere, the global situation in the post-9-11 world. Indonesia is definitely, you know, connected to that as well. So I think there's like global and external factors uh, there with the greater influence of um, Middle Eastern versions of Arabic versions of Islamness uh, emanating throughout the rest of the Muslim world, such as in Indonesia as well. Mm. Uh, but also with domestic factors too, like what I mentioned before about the young people, uh, the middle lower classes, um, and actually the middle upper classes too, that are not certain about uh, their future uh, in Indonesia, that are mm -hmm. not sure about um, political stability, economic stability, and uh, stronger ideological uh, voices, uh, particularly that is religiously driven, becomes very um, appealing to them. Now, when we talk about conservatism in Indonesia, we talk about Islamic conservatism, but actually there's like growing conservatism in other religions too, Christian conservatism, mm -hmm. you know, for instance. Uh, they've also been gaining followers for the same reasons too. Uh, the political sphere now has become much more polarized. People are m uh, more compelled to take a stand than ever before. Mm -hmm. um, and also there's like the mainstreaming of more conservative Mm. Islamness uh, mm. that has manifested in uh, pop culture, in fashion, that has become normalized in everyday um, politics as well. So I think all these um, all these factors need to be taken into consideration because I think, um, and also we often forget that there are also internal contestations within Indonesian Islam itself. Yes, um, it's not a homogenous entity. No, yeah. uh, absolutely not. Although you know the 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 moderate. Muslims have been accused of not being outspoken enough mm -hmm. against more conservative brands of Islam. Uh, but if we look now, there's more uh, 
conversations, there's more mention of this notion of Islam Nusantara, for instance, right? But, or, um, Is that a particularly Indonesian style of Islam? Yes, right. um, where it's uh, particularly from the more liberal um, and uh, liberal Islamic factions in Indonesia trying to sort of counter this narrative of Arabization of more conservative um, Islamness by saying actually Indonesian Islam has always been heterogeneous yeah. and pluralist. Yeah. Um, if we look at uh, Kejawen brands of um, Islam, for instance, it's always incorporated um, cultural, as you know, local cultural aspects into their form of worship um, and and um, and teachings. So. Um, I think these are some of the things that uh, are often forgotten uh, when we're talking about growing radicalization and, and growing Islamization in Indonesia. Absolutely, and they're important points to remember, I think. Um, could you, Charlotte, perhaps tell us uh, what you see as some of the causes for optimism or perhaps some of the opportunities looking forward for Indonesia? Yeah, I think there's a lot to be optimistic about. Um, for instance, in the wake of the Surabaya bombings, um, the reaction has been overwhelmingly condemning uh, these terror attacks. Uh, it has been mm. um, an awakening, yes, about the realities of, um, you know, uh, radicalized, uh, sort of more radical versions of Islam, and people have been um, showing support towards, you know, the churches that have been bombed and also expressing uh, their support for a more plural Indonesia to that we that we shouldn't be doing this to each other. And that's been a very strong narrative that's come out, which is very positive. Mm. And the reality is the majority of Indonesians, you know, see, um, see the importance of um, inter-religious and inter-ethnic tol tolerance. Mm. Um, and I think sometimes in uh, our alarm over recent situations, we forget that actually there are all these um, positive um, uh, voices in society as well. Uh, in terms of mm. um, the democratic situation in Indonesia, like I said before, even though, yes, there are signs that we are regressing in that, um, we still have you know, healthy elections um, coming up. Uh, as well. Mm. Um, and, you know, for better or for worse, the alternative voices in society are still being heard as well. Uh, we are, have been seeing in the yeah. last year um, greater intolerance towards, uh, for instance, sexual minorities against LGBT groups. Mm. But uh, one thing that Indonesia does have is a very strong network of NGOs and civil society groups that sure. are championing yeah. uh, the rights of minorities. Mm. So um, it's, it's, it's something to be uh, positive about that mm. 20 years after reform, w Indonesia is a country where all these competing voices can still thrive and um, so far um, under a democratic government. Absolutely. And I think that's a really positive note to finish on. Charlotte, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.